I just give it a go. We'll start sober with water. Things get... <laughs> We can turn the beer if things get too crazy. That's a good, yeah. If I sound too boring, give me a beer. It'll controversial uh, it up. S- n- sorry? We'll get, get real controversial. Yeah, yeah. I get you say something really, really, really out there. Not really get, get me to slag off everyone as, as uh, revisionists. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, that is like, it's, I think that might be one of my favorite insults for people. <laughs> like, I mean, when, especially when they come and start like, tell, like saying anything that it's just like yeah you know this is what happened you just go it's like hang on what's with this revisionist history here like that's not what happened exactly. <laughs> oh it has to yeah probably one of my favorite it's, favorite insults it's so like meta as well now like you where does it st- where did it start like who who's been revised by who and <laughs> goes on ad infinitum doesn't it but anyway um yeah everybody welcome to another episode of chatter today i'm here with ted reese back for yeah second appearance on the show man welcome back thanks very much for having me on again no problem so yeah you're here to talk about your book yep uh book uh has just come out last week with zero books um it's called the end of capitalism the thoughts of henrik grossman and it's about henrik grossman who was a marxist in the 20th century who i regard as the kind of like the best marxist in terms of economics uh, and economic theory um, after Marx and Engels. And I think because there was so much confusion among left-wing circles and other socialists um, during the 20th century, um, that his work is very important in clearing up what Marx was actually trying to do and what he showed, especially in Capital. Um, and the argument is that Marx showed that Capital was crisis-prone, inherently had a tendency to break down. That's where we get, and and so we get economic recessions that, that tend to get worse as time goes on and as the system gets bigger. And also that the system eventually comes up against historic limits uh, and must eventually face a sort of insurmountable final breakdown. That was what Grossman was trying to defend against a host of revisionists who who wanted to claim Marx, either to claim that Marx hadn't shown a breakdown tendency, um, that, that he'd shown actually that capital could accumulate indefinitely and harmoniously, um, or that any breakdown tendency that he had shown was actually wrong, um, using his own work to sort of prove that. So, yeah, I think now that we seem to be heading for a very late stage of capitalism... Uh, which we can get into why I think that, but I think that means that Grossman and by extension Marx are becoming relevant again and, uh, you know, in in some ways relevant for the first time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is like, we're, we'll get to the, the more complicated stuff. For everybody yeah. who's watching as well, uh, this this podcast is 100% going to be crashed by like, Max the Cat <laughs> there in the background. Um, so <laughs> Max the Marxist. Yeah, yeah, maybe he is a Marxist. That's why he's, <laughs> that's why he's here, loving it. Um, but... Yeah, we'll get, we'll get into the more specific details of Grossman's theory and, and why you think we're at a, a late stage of capitalism. Like, we're definitely at a late stage of fucking something. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, you talk about Grossman like he's probably, in your mind at least, one of the most important like left-wing Marxist, communist thinkers of, yeah, well, yeah, 
that there is. Mm. So why have I never heard of him? Because like it's not that it's not that I'm like poorly versed in the left and and you know Marx and communism and things. Yeah, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but you know I know some stuff. Mm. <laughs> so why have I never You're heard well of read. this guy? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Um, eight years ago, I I hadn't heard of him, and I was in a revolutionary communist organization so when i read his book because i was at the time i was writing a book uh, a theory paper on uh automation and it's linked to the economic crisis after 2008 and um someone said because i was sort of saying the more automated production gets the um the likelier the economic crisis is worse the the likelier it is that the economic crises are going to worsen and that capitalism is going to have to end. And a comrade in the organisation said to me, well, you've got, if you're talking about final breakdowns, you want to, you want to consult Grossman's work. And he gave, he gave me a copy of the abridged version of Grossman's book, The Law of Accumulation and the Breakdown of Capitalist System, which there was an English, an English version of that came out in 1992, just an abridged version. And this was the first time I'd read it. And so when I read it, I just found it very clarifying of Marx's theory. And it helped me to uh, get to grips with capital better as well. And so then I started looking into it. And I mean, there's there's two ways of looking at it. There's, there's or a few ways of looking at it. There's the fact that, um, you know, most of the left isn't revolutionary. It's reformist. And so the interpretations that get promoted of Marx are, are usually sort of academic, they're quite academic in both senses of the word sort of thing. And the revolutionary content of capital kind of gets removed and we, we get given different um, theories of crisis theory that aren't what Marx was actually um, showing. So we tend to get we tend to get told that there is an underconsumption theory that explains the I mean that ex- explains like the social crisis of capitalism where you're getting more and more people impoverished or unemployed and so on and so forth and so you get people like David Harvey, Yanis um, uh, Varoufakis, um, and and so on who promote this underconsumption theory and the there's a reformist solution of course which is that if you, if the capitalists pay um the workers more money the workers will be able to buy, buy more products and the capitalist crisis will go away and you're less likely to have a recession or there's the theory of uh disproportionality which is similar but it's the theory is more or less um that these systems not being regulated well enough and you end up with a disproportionate amount of profit or produce or or whatever it is, um, a sort of disbalance or a disequilibrium um, that emerges between branches of industry. And so the system goes out of kilter uh, in terms of supply and demand of, of capital and labour, for example, and you end up with a crisis. Again, if it's well regulated by the state then the crisis goes away. So th- these are, Marx gets reframed in in those sort of ways. Um, the other problem is that 
the Soviet Union didn't uphold Grossman. Um, Grossman actually took on, uh, uh, you know, Varga, who was the sort of chief economic advisor to Stalin, um, uh, who also had a kind of an under-consumptionist view of capitalist crisis. Um, it was a less reformist version, but it, although it was sort of half and half on that on that front, um, because the Soviet Union defended um, the idea that uh, capitalism had to end, but it, because of its isolation, it ended up having a reformist foreign policy, and so it kind of had this half and half economic uh, crisis theory as well. Um, so. I think if if the Soviet Union had um, promoted Grossman, he would be well more well known because obviously a lot of what we know about. I mean, I was watching. Um, I don't know if you've uh, seen any of Chris Coutron's interviews on a um, a station on YouTube called Theory Plebe. No. And um, he was saying the other day, if it wasn't for Lenin, we wouldn't really talk about Marx because Lenin really. Without Lenin, the, the the Soviet Union or the, the yeah. Russian Revolution might not have happened, because he really was at the forefront of of taking the bull by the horns and, and and turning a revolutionary situation into a revolution. And I can kind of see where he's coming from with that argument. So a lot of what we know about socialism and Marxism, we get from the fact that we had the Soviet Union, even though it's gone now. Mm. And but but because it was such a, a massive a historical, had such a massive historical impact, we still think about that and and we still have to re uh, reckon with, with Marxism as a result. Um, so yeah, those are the, so yeah, on the, on the revisionist side and the revolutionary side, um, Grossman was kind of um, forgotten. And he wasn't really, he didn't really come up again until the 70s when a new crisis, like the first crisis after World War II broke out mm. and some uh, English um, Marxists started promoting his work again. And then the, the abridged version came out in 1992. But he remained fairly obscure because he prom he promotes this, what he calls as a, uh, he says he's demonstrating that that capital and marx in capital demonstrated a, a theory of breakdown um but that's been ignored or neglected or rejected okay we're gonna get to that yeah because there was a lot of big marxist words in that, <laughs> that you sent me so some of it i was grasping some of it was just like there's there's a there's a lot of jargon here so yeah fair enough. got some questions about that for later but um a couple of things i want to just like chat about first actually that you'd mentioned there so like do you think that the left should be revolutionary well um i think it's gonna have to be at some point <laughs> because i think capitalism is going to break down and therefore that will c compel a a new um class struggle for socialism um i mean you can you can read into grossman and Marx as to why the the left isn't revolutionary at a particular point in time. I forgot I was going to say in the last uh, answer that like Marx was in in Gross in the full version of Grossman's book. The English version actually only came out a year ago. Um, oh, wow. Um, 
he says in there like Marx is really like um sort of forlorn about about how his his work hasn't made the impact that he thought it was going to make even amongst the sort of leaders of the of the labor movement and Grossman obviously ends up um experiencing the same fate in that it it doesn't really get taken up and um but he says like Marx's theory sort of suddenly becomes um relevant mm. to so many more people in a revolutionary situation and when that happened in Russia it's sort of you know something that's obscure can suddenly yeah take off and sort of so Grossman's saying sort of like outside of a re revolutionary situation this work we're doing isn't gonna really have to have a big impact with people but so I kind of think of it now as like before a final breakdown of capitalism the work isn't relevant to a lot of people and they want they don't want to think about uh you know taking on the capitalist system which is kind of an understandable sentiment yeah but um so outside of a sort of final breakdown perhaps that's why it's never really caught on in the way that it deserved to be um but when a final breakdown actually does come along and i think it's going to be in the next decade or so um then it will become relevant and people will have to re-examine you know what it what what it is to be a marxist yeah yeah i mean it's 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 very difficult to argue with the idea that we are approaching some sort of end game of something because like i mean even for people who are listening who would not consider themselves to be either revolutionary or probably even on the left like i'm quite lucky i get people from all sides of the political spectrum watching this show mm. which is great thanks yeah <laughs> <laughs> but the like we, I, I, people on here talking like we had um christopher leonard on who wrote a book um about about the federal reserve and just about the sort of obscene amount of money that's been printed since yeah. 2008 yeah and how it yeah then kicked into into high gear with the pandemic and he's just like this is it this is the, the game's up like they're just they're just printing now because that's all they got that's the mm. only thing that they they're capable of, of doing and at some point it's all just going to come crashing down and so what you're saying then is basically that sometimes the ideas that become the ones that for that that form what comes after a revolution don't actually ever but they don't they're not seen as as important until that moment at which they're yeah relevant to people yeah because like grossman gets accused another reason he was neglected is he was accused of having an automatic theory or a mechanical theory of of socialism's replacement of capitalism so he shows that there's capitalism must go into crisis must experience a breakdown in production and eventually you get one like that that compels a revolution because so many people are put out of work and production contracts so much um so he was accused of the, the, this was you know he was accused of having a, a automatic um theory of revolution that discounted the importance of class struggle but what he was saying was that was not what he was saying he was saying that the breakdown compels a class struggle so the the working class is compelled to take up the struggle f for socialism 
and that has been borne out by the last hundred years like okay we've had some socialist revolutions before a final breakdown of the of the system on a global basis but um you know apart from those few exceptions reformism has won out against revolution effectively and you've got to be able to explain that and that's and it kind of like the explanation is the system hasn't had hasn't come up against that insurmountable crisis yeah it feels like yeah, like I said, it feels like we're approaching some sort of madness. Mm. Um, and we have, you pointed out there that like, what were you saying about the, the first the first crisis post, uh, post-Second World War in the 70s? Where we're mm-hmm. actually facing like quite a similar situation now. Yeah. So what makes you think that we won't deal with it in the same way? Like, because uh, you're saying we got 10 years. So that's like, that, yeah. that would have meant that we would have been in the middle of revolution by by like the 80s right if if the if what you think will play out now it happened then so what's different like why why do you think that's going to happen now that that's a good question i mean in the in that crisis they were able to resolve it albeit temporarily by i mean partly by destroying the soviet union <laughs> <laughs> because they they by doing that they and I, I know that took 20 years but that by doing that they opened up all that labor to that wasn't being exploited by capital and therefore generating profit for, for private uh for private accumulation um and and before that you know they started exporting capital um to um both to expand and cheapen the the supply of exploitable labor um because you could get cheaper labor in countries that were less developed because the labor there is obviously coming into employment from a lower wage mm-hmm. and is therefore likely to do the same work for a for a, a, a bit more than the, what they're on before whereas people in this country in America are going to want to hold on to the wages they're earning at the time, which were high mm. after World War Two, because you'd had a productivity boom in the wake of all the destruction, mm. which created new profitable opportunities. Um, the, I mean, the state took on most of the sort of upfront costs that capital couldn't afford after World War Two. The demand for labour was very high after World War Two because you've got whole countries to rebuild. But then this crisis comes along, inevitably, because of the contradictions of capitalism that we'll, we'll go into in more, more detail. But how do they resolve it? So they so they exploit cheaper labour abroad. That raises the, the rate of uh, profit. Um, they depress the wages in, in America, Britain, Western European countries, and they start um, shifting labour into services and um, they develop the financial system on a much greater level. Um, but now they've sort of run out of countries to expand into, in a sense. Like China was obviously the big one, but... Um, you know they 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 exported capital into most of the world like you could say they haven't done it with africa to the same extent but even in africa they've started de-industrializing the workforce again shifting workers out of manufacturing into um into services 
the other things so there's some other indications um so the, the rate of profit is low the general rate of profit is lower a lot lower now than it was in the 70s um the um profitability of fossil fuel is much lower um like <laughs> no, yeah no 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 man ask the gas company well well ask those fucks that, that like yeah. wholesale gas prices are down 50 percent in since february yeah and the price is like triple but they're only <laughs> but they're only doing that by screwing everyone yeah. and that's that's an unsustainable way of of because when you when you're putting prices up you're making everyone else poorer and eventually people are going to get so poor that they can't pay those prices but what happened after the march crash in 2020 was the price of us oil went below zero for the first time ever and so they're gonna have to start doing something to reverse that trend and it, and it's really just because the productive uh capacity that we've built over centuries is now so high that prices inversely fall to that point um you know the more abundantly we produce things the cheaper they get that's just a general rule you don't really need to be a marxist to understand that mm. and we can see with things like 3d printing um and uh i don't know if you've heard of precision fermentation which is like a new form of growing food there's all these new technologies coming out mm. where the price of production is basically zero because there's no labor involved there's no human labor there's no wage yeah coming out of of the profit so that's that's i mean i mean m people must look at automation and, and think well who's gonna how are we gonna earn a living mm. and you, again you don't really be have to be a marxist to to think about that but again most people look at automation and think oh capitalism's going to end because of an underconsumption crisis because it's going to put everyone out of work but really it's it's going to abolish the source of profit because um the source of profit is the exploitation of labor, which is basically the the theft of labor time. So you let the laborer keep enough of the labor time they worked to subsist, but the rest of their labor time goes to the capitalist and is realized in, um, in profits through commodity sales. So to get back to the answer of the question, there's um, the rate of profit is, is much lower than in the 70s. The energy return on investment um, is really low. Like in 1930, it was 100 to 1. So for every unit of energy invested, you would get 100 units back. It's now, for fossil fuel anyway, it's, bet it's between 3 and 6 now. That was according to a paper from 2019. Holy shit. Man. Yeah. And so, and that's a secular trend because a lot of people go, "Oh, we're back in the 1930s," yeah. and of course, capitalism survived. Mm. But the Just. the, the <laughs> figures are different. Like that's a secular trend that's continued. Uh, so the the it was hundred to one in 1930 during the Great Depression, and now it's like obviously our yeah. capacity to produce is much much higher now, but the return is falling significantly and it's because it's tied to value like capitalists are only going to invest if it's profitable if the returns are high enough there's a um lecture on youtube you can watch by someone called sid smith 
called How to Enjoy the End of the World. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he argues quite convincingly that that's the case, not just for fossil fuel, but also for all all types of energy investment, including renewables, which are capital-intensive from the get-go, really. Um, And there's a few other indications, like the average age of um, the... 500 largest US corporations used to be 60 years like nearly a century ago now it's 18 years so that's so if a new corporation breaks out into the top 500 co- companies in the US it only la- it lasts less than 20 years and that's a figure taken from about 7 years ago so that's probably contracted um but i, I think the energy return on investment is the big one um, there's probably a couple of others I'm I'm forgetting, but the the you know the um, the falling prices is, is a big is a big one as well. So it's there's a lot of empirical data and evidence that really seems to be backing up Marx's claim that not only does the rate of profit fall, but it falls progressively mm. towards uh, basically towards zero. Okay, so basically, let me just clarify like, mm. this this idea so I know I've understood it right. So basically, you're saying that what happens is when things become more and more automated, there's less labor, there's less, there's just less people to pay involved in the production of something. Yeah, relative to the amount of capital that's being advanced and invested in. Yeah. Okay. So if there's less people to pay, it costs less to create stuff, but therefore it's lower profit margins. Mm-hmm. And therefore the idea is that there will the capitalism being driven by yeah seeking profit will have nowhere to go mm-hmm. because there will be no profit to be had yeah is that is that about right yeah so um this is where grossman's theory is really important because he shows that a breakdown occurs because you get you get what he calls an overaccumulation of capital where basically the capitalists don't invest. They they get a, sur- a surplus of capital arises that they can't reinvest in or expand because it would be unprofitable. So they then have to devalue that capital and re uh, through a crisis, you get the panic selling, prices fall. You can then buy up um, uh, means of production cheaper than you could before. Uh, people go bust you can buy up their capital on the cheap and then you can start expanding Mm. so what uh, Marx and um, Grossman also talk about is an absolute over accumulation of capital yeah and I mean there are different ways of interpreting that that I don't think it's worth going into but I think in a final crisis of capitalism you could uh, sort of explain you could explain it as an over accumulation an absolute overaccumulation of capital, whereas crises in the past have been relative overaccumulations. And yeah, with automation, you're you're seeing really. I think what I would say is like to try and clear this up is that capitalism is a, a dualistic mode of production. This is something Grossman stresses very strongly because other Marxists after Marx had just ignored it really it's it's a valorization process so it's a value generating process yeah it's dependent on that 
um, you generate your value, you draw your profits from that. It's also a technical labor process um, and the two interact. So Marx talks about the base and the, um, the um, superstructure. So that the superstructure being the um, political legal system. But the base is the economic technical system. So it's economic and it's technical. And people, even a lot of Marxists, when they sort of talk about, oh, we have to make sure we're talking about how the, the base and the superstructure interact, they forget to talk about how the economic side of the base interacts with the technical side of the base. So what's happening is that the technical side of the base is abolishing the economic side of the base, the economic side being the value side. Because the technical side is becoming so abundantly productive that the value side is sort of withering away. Mm. So what happens throughout the history of capitalism is you get you get a crisis um, and they do what has... So the crisis cheapens production, expansion and innovation. So you innovate so that you can then produce more in, in the next business cycle yeah like if you want to call it like if you want to think of it as a business cycle as every 10 years or whatever because crises tend to have or yeah. recessions tend to strike at like roughly every 10 years so the so the value side needs renewing sort of thing uh you need to the the cap the capital existing isn't being valorized there's yeah. not enough value being generated so the technical side is expanded and innovated and that gets the value back up because you're producing more. Mm -hmm. So the massive profit is rising. Mm. But, it's interesting because productivity is just basically stalled. Well, productivity growth. Sorry, productivity yeah, growth is productivity stalled. growth after over the last 30, 40 years yeah, yeah. has so been basically. I think Eric Weinstein points to nineteen seventy one. Yeah, actually, as the, the 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 time as when productivity growth has just flatlined. Yeah, I, I can't remember who said it now. It was a Nobel Prize winning economist, but he said, and I think it was late 70s or early 80s, he said something along the lines of, you can see the productivity boom everywhere, but in the figures. Because, <laughs> because we can see that yeah. we're producing more. You know, you can, and, and you can buy things more cheaply. We talked about this in, the, in our last um, conversation where, yeah. like, you can get poorer in terms of not being able to afford a house or like the essentials like that, not being able to afford to have kids or whatever, yeah. but you can buy all this, all these gadgets and widgetry and, you know, technical wizardry mm. that you can, you know, um, play with to pass the time or whatever you want to do, like to amuse yourself with, to, to interact with, um, and a lot of it's great, like, because technically things are advancing and, you know, like people who are into playing games and stuff like the games are getting better because the capability, I mean, I don't know that I'm just guessing that the games are getting bigger, uh, getting better because I don't play them, but like things uh, like that, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the capacity to make anything better, more realistic or whatever is always growing because we're always innovating like computing power tends to double every two years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So our capacity to produce is always growing. But we're really going through a, in terms of te technological capacity, 
we're really going through an exponential rise now mm. over the last 20 years and and what we're actually going into now like the so the product so if you look at like the rate of technology if you look at the rate of gdp growth it does this for a long time yeah. over the course of history yeah. and then suddenly after the second world war yeah. or building up to the second world war it starts doing that mm. so it's no longer like it wasn't even linear before it was just yeah, sort yeah. of very gradual but then suddenly and now it's doing that mm. so it's almost going you know vertical. yeah it's almost going vertical but that's not possible to sustain when you're tying it to value no because no. As we say, there's also a graph showing that productivity growth is going in the opposite direction and the rate of profit is going in the opposite direction. The, the two things are happening because of each other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's like, a really interesting perspective. It is. It is. Like, it's like it's, it's it, fascinating. Yeah. And it, like, obviously, it's horrible to think about consequences of an economic breakdown like every recession is always bad yeah it was that um, line in the big short like the, the the when they're in the they're in vegas you know the film the big short and they're mm, in vegas yeah i've seen and it the brad pitt's character is like teaching the two young kids uh, i think it's the brownlee brothers or that maybe that's triathletes that i'm thinking of there's two brothers <laughs> yeah. for some reason they've that brownlee's popped in my head i think they're the triathletes actually anyway the two brothers of Brad Pitt's character, and um, they're like dancing around because they've just like, um, you know, sold a bunch of a bunch of swaps basically in the in the film, and they're like betting on the economy falling to bits, and they're dancing around because they're happy because they think they've just made the deal that's going to make them rich, and then Brad Pitt's character turns around and is like, hey, every time GDP decreases or every time unemployment goes up one percent, forty thousand people die. Wow. I'm going to guess that's probably an America-specific stat. Yeah. Um, but it's still definitely, definitely accurate in that, like, when people have less money, they're, you know, they're less healthy. Yeah. They don't go to the doctor mm -hmm. as much. They maybe don't, like, look after themselves. They're stressed. That causes their health to deteriorate. You know, the, all these things that come along with an economic crash are fucking awful, awful things. Um, but the, the the other idea that, that I find really interesting is that, and it was you quoted it in the book and you almost said said it like verbatim there is just like it becomes more difficult to valorize i .e. reproduce and expand the enormously accu accumulated capital like as in so let me I just want to clarify that I've understood what you mm. mean by this first is like basically um as we've seen over the last twenty years uh the the top one percent of society have accumulated more and more and more wealth mm. in in the western world at least anyway i can't speak for everywhere but that's generally the way we've been we've been trending and that was seriously exacerbated by the 2008 crash and as you sort of like pointed out what happens is the economy crashes those with not very much end up with even less and those with the money to take advantage of the situation buy all up buy everything up mm. at the yeah. bottom like that's why we're the amount of competition is decreasing in so many industries because it's just like they've got maybe one or two giants like Duke and Ali because they've just the ones that have like subsumed everyone else exactly, like yeah. in almost every industry. Um, and then, yeah, pandemic comes along 2020 and they start printing their obscene amounts of money and all it does is like pump up the value of the stock market and, and give the richest in society like, yeah, 
we went through this the last time, but like, yeah, they became far, far richer and that sort of gap continues to grow. And like, essentially what I, my understanding of what, what, what you said here is that like, as they get a larger and larger portion of the pie and as that, that means that they are unable to continue to accumulate like, or like profiteer or get more and more of a share of the economy because, because they have so much already, it's basically impossible to have more without having everything is that like is that mm. basically what you're trying to say i mean i i would say that's a good way of describing the social side of this tendency in terms of the economics yeah i mean it's not it's basically the same i mean i i use the analogy of a bodybuilder who's addicted to muscle gain because the way that you mm. um, build muscle is to destroy it mm -hmm. and then it grows back larger but eventually that process comes, you get so top heavy that you sort of like, you can imagine if, if you also imagine this um, figure to be a cartoon, like who topples, <laughs> topples over sort of thing, because it gets too top heavy and, or like gives up because like, it's just becomes too hard. Like you have to work harder yeah. to produce, to get that extra muscle gain. Yeah like through every cycle again mm -hmm. and again and that's kind of how capitalism works and at the same time it's aging and, and getting more senile so mm -hmm. like there's um when i said about the over accumulation of capital so you've got this surplus of capital and i mean and uh, you could almost imagine an an, an over an absolute over accumulation as being like all of the capital in 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 existence becomes unprofitable mm. effectively where you just you can't produce any more profit and the, and the reason is at the same time this over accumulation of capital is at the same time an underproduction of surplus value again surplus value is surplus labor time that's gone to the capitalist instead of the worker yeah um but the more you're replacing productive workers i.e commodity producing workers uh the more you're replacing them with robots and sophisticated uh, versions of automation, yeah. the less surplus value per worker is being produced and, and relative to the total capital that has the, it's the total capital needs to be renewed in value. Right? So what happens is it gets devalued by the crisis, but then it starts the value in relative terms starts to grow again as production uh, is restored on a higher level. So what you're going to get is a crash where the value drops like right down somewhere close to zero um, effectively because you have this underproduction of surplus value, which is the value needed to valorize capital. And, and if you think of it as like that applies to every capitalist company and industry but you can think you can also think of it in the totality yeah i think that's, that's actually easier to think about because like you you it's like um it's like if you like you're businessman x and you have a, like so say you're jeff bezos right mm. and you employ like half of fucking britain right <laughs> at some point <laughs> right or half of the states or you know the you know you make your own state of of, of amazon 
and they just buy Delaware and just <laughs> rebrand it. <laughs> but like, if you have, if you're like the, the the biggest employer and you're paying workers, that like you've you've cut like wages and the amount of workers you have down to like as the barest of minimums because everything's automated, then the people who are working in the economy that would be buying the shit that you're making don't have the money exactly, <laughs> to go yeah. and buy the stuff. Mm. So therefore, yeah, it just it, you're just making things for no reason, yeah. almost. That's the social side of it. That's the reason that a, a socialist revolution will become necessary for the vast majority of people because you get this concentration of capital, which is a tendency that is necessitated to um, to offset the breakdown tendency. So so all the things that we see after um, 2008 and the stock market crash in, 20, in March 2020, every time you see this concentration of capital, and that's because they're trying to offset the, um, the crisis that just happened. So there's not enough surplus value, not enough value being produced. So you need to redistribute the value that, that does exist upwards to sustain the cap, both the capital that does exist and the wealth, um, the personal wealth of the capitalists as well. Um, and then what else do they do? They privatize social and public assets, um, you know, public services get privatized and rationed because for the for the very same reason you know it's all about every all of everything they do to resolve every crisis is about offsetting the conditions that produce that crisis effectively yeah so i think um we're going to talk revolution so it's a bit of it's a good idea i got some interesting questions for you about yeah Revolution and, and Marxism. If I could get my beer open, if I can help find the opener, did you have channel? So, like the the thing that. Oh, cheers, man! Cheers. The um the thing that I'm always curious, right? Because like I I'm like a lot of what you're saying like makes just total and perfect sense, right? Mm. And then the question that I genuinely always have for, uh, say, Marxists or communists or like anyone of, who like would put themselves in that camp um, is, and I don't know the answer to this question, <laughs> obviously what I'm asking you, but like people wouldn't want to be associated, people wouldn't like label themselves like fascists because mm. of like the horrors that went on in the 20th century, right? Why do you think it's different for like Marxists or or communists to, yeah, use that label when arguably more people died under those regimes than than did under fascism? Like, not that I'm justifying like any murders of anyone. No, no. But yeah, like, do you, do you get this question from people? You like? get you get um, told that communism uh, hunt, killed a hundred million people mm. and stuff like that, and I'm not denying that. Um, some bad stuff happened uh, under communism. I think that can be explained in material, in material, like in material historic terms, rather than communists are bad and want to do bad things. I think, you know, the isolation of the Soviet Union, 
um, had a massive impact on what it was capable of doing. Um, it was constantly under attack from the imperialist nations, i.e. the US, Britain, the leading powers of Western Europe. Um, it didn't have a lot of support outside of itself. Um, I think Stalin becomes the leader of the Soviet Union instead of Trotsky because... Um, well, he murdered him. No, well, he, he, he murdered him, yeah, <laughs> but, but, but he became leader before that. You know, that, that, that has to be explained. So why did... So why was that? Well, Trotsky tended to have a, a bit more of a more of aggressive revolutionary uh, position. But Lenin comes to power in the Soviet Union on the basis that he's going to pull Russia out of World War One. Mm-hmm. So Trotsky's like, oh, well, let's actually carry on and push the revolution westwards. Mm. But that's not an option because, as I say, peace... Red Peace Land was the um, was what got Lenin yeah. power. Essentially, that's what won the Soviets over to the Bolsheviks and put the Bolsheviks in the leadership. So they pull out of the of the war, and and Stalin's position was more defensive. He was he was less aggressive in terms of trying to spread the revolution than Trotsky. So th- effectively the soldiers who had been fighting in World War One were less gun ho than the likes of Trotsky and, and maybe people people to the left of Trotsky, one of whom I can't remember who it was, but one who ends up shooting Lenin and Lenin ends up dying of those wounds because mm-hmm. Lenin gets cast as a as a revisionist. And for not sprit taking, you know, taking on the world revolution there and then, sort mm. of thing. So Stalin becomes leader, but but as Fidel Castro said, you can't put everything down to Stalin. Mm. It's it's a he is like I kind of think of him as a kind of manifestation of of the kind of aggregate will of the masses in a way. In, and but again, you've got to put that in the context of. The Soviet Union's isolation and um, the the fact that it was under attack and it was having to survive. So, you know, Stalin says, "Okay, we're going to have socialism, but we're only going to have it here, and we're not going to try and spread it around the rest of the world because we don't have the capacity." Which I think is a pretty fair argument um, at the time, especially as like you can't expect Russia to make the world revolution. The world, rev- the world has to make the world revolution. Mm. And you have this, um, so you have this tension within the movement and yeah, I don't agree with the purges, but this is the kind of thing that's going on. You've got this struggle within the, within the state, within the armed forces um, and people there are there are factions there are factions who are vying for each other and again i don't agree with stalin's position on banning factions it might have even been Lenin did that i can't remember now but um but yeah these are the sorts of things that go on and what i mean the hundred million figure is is bogus it's it's rubbish um there were people in in the camps who weren't paid for for their prison labor during the war but that happens in every war mm. that will happen in any civil war i'm not justifying it no. i'm i'm just saying that happens mm. like if you're humans do awful if, shit yeah if you but but when you get a breakdown in production you get a breakdown in the production of life mm. and the resources that you would usually have 
to distribute to everyone. So at the moment in in this country, um, you know, there is prison labour, but they get paid. I mean, it's they don't get paid a lot, but they no. get paid. So it's not slave labour. But if this country sinks into civil war and our resources, um, you know, uh, plummet, they might not get paid. It's pr probably pretty likely that they won't get paid. It's pretty likely that the the prison population will rise for a time. You know, so these yeah. these things happen and, you know, they are you have to put them in historical context. I would also say in terms of the, the Soviet Union that, um, you know, it just didn't have enough support from the working class outside of of the Soviet Union. It had some and and that that some you know enabled it to sort of secure itself um as a socialist country but it wasn't enough to like really propel it forward to what it could have been within a world system mm. so th there are all sorts of problems that isolation um gets you um in terms of planning the economy, which is what a socialist economy is. I mean, yeah. capitalist economies are, are increasingly planned. Yeah. And that is another indication that there's a pre-socialist trend towards, towards socialism. Mm. Um, so that, so the fact that the Soviet Union had to trade with the rest of the world, which were capitalist undermined its ability to plan because you can't predict fluctuating product prices in other countries. For example, um, sanctions from the U S meant, um, that they couldn't get hold of certain things, including things like at, at certain times, things like con contraception, mm. which from what I've read led to the reinstatement of some of the um, anti-abortion policies that came back in later. Um, so like, even again, I wouldn't promote such a policy, yeah. but it came from somewhere. Mm. And like the policy probably didn't even work. Like, well, probably but not. yeah, but that's Policies the kind like of, yeah, but that's the kind of thing that was happening that inspired or motivated like, like things that would usually be seen as socially regressive. But you've, I've also got to stress that socialism isn't a utopia. Marx and Engels and uh, any other revolutionary Marxist has never promoted socialism as a utopia. It's a higher mode of production and it's also a process mm. like history itself, like evolution itself. And I mean, the hundred million figure includes like Nazis that were killed by the Soviet Union and um, people killed by the Nazis in some instances as well. So it is, it is a very inflated figure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's not my area of expertise. Like, no, no, no. In terms of, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious very, to like, yeah, like what, what these are very general like contexts that I think you have to put it in. No, no, it's fair enough. I mean, but, I just I just yeah. don't talk to that many like actual like yeah. people who define themselves like this. So yeah. I'm always curious to like. I'm, I mean, I've written, I'm writing something else at the moment, and I've on my Medium blog there is I've done like a Q and A because mm. I know like people must write, raise eyebrows like you're saying. Um, and I, but I'm saying socialism's becoming an economic necessity. Mm. I'm not saying the socialisms in the past were good or bad. I think they had mixed results. Um, I think they were were better than. I think Russia becoming socialist 
was better for the people of Russia than if it had become capitalist or even fascist. And I think without the socialist revolution, it probably there was a high risk that it could have become fascist mm. for a time. Um, because that tends to happen when you get a failed revolution. I mean, it was an autocratic dictatorship. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, the Tsar, but, but, the Tsar yeah. wasn't, wasn't like, yeah. he wasn't Churchill. Like, or like, he wasn't some like, like hero, like the church was here, but like, he wasn't like an icon of democracy, you know? Like, no, of course not. <laughs> but, that, but the, there were fascist forces being mobilizing to, to crush the revolution. And as we've seen, when socialist revolutions or even, you know, attempts at sort of radical social democracy have failed, mm. the, they've been crushed or the void has been filled by fascist forces. Mm. Yeah. Which is actually why I'm kind of terrified about the prospect of like full revolution. Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> it is scary, and I think a lot of the the reason reformism remains popular is because the idea of like any revolution, let alone a world revolution, is you know is it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in, and so you can this this again goes back to why Grossman sort of says, well, the reason. The reason Marx was probably ignored was probably because the crisis that he describes in Capital just hasn't happened yet. Mm. But again, socialism's not a utopia. Okay. And I, th you know... Because, like, actually, let me stop you there, because that's, like, one of the... That was the other sort of question I kind of had on this. It's essentially, like, what what is the... Like, do you believe in, like, absolute... Like like equal pay or is the was was it um, each according to their means and each each according to their need, um, like is that like do you believe in like absolute like I mean the state should like have control of like all money wages like everything should be completely like equal is that where you stand on no things? no no it's not, it's not like that the, okay. the, there are two stages of communism so socialism is is inter a term that's interchangeable with lower communism okay. We had lower. We we could also talk about capitalism in terms of lower and higher capitalism. We had lower capitalism in the in its early phases, and then it turned into higher capitalism, which we could all also call monopoly capitalism, where the the mergers of industries end up with these companies who own who exclusively own own whole industries. Okay. Um, so the same is true of communism i i support the idea of a state so obviously this is you know there's a wide range of views on how socialism should be realized yeah, both no, in terms of curious on what your thoughts are yeah so what so what the way i see it is that you have a socialist state after a revolution and then the state withers away that's i agree with lenin on this position the state withers away and i think that it withers away on the basis of rising productivity so where we've seen flatlining or you know very sort of spluttering productivity growth in what i would consider the the, the final phase of phases of capitalism that would be unleashed that would be freed up liberated the productive forces would be liberated because the value the, the value question, the value side of production would have been abolished. Therefore, you remove that fetter, that that need to um, create enough value to reproduce capital and expand it. That's gone. Therefore, you can just produce mm. like according to need and want. I don't. It doesn't have to be just 
for needs and I, and I would say wants our needs you know a lot of the time um so the reason i say you need a socialist state first is because power concentrates into fewer hands when production collapses mm. so a i think a world revolution is only going to be sort of spurred by that sort of breakdown um in production but you you there you then have so you then have that concentration of power into fewer hands into the the capitalist state's hands and we, we've already seen that over the last 20 years yeah like, no no you see like the especially the last 10 years yeah. <laughs> in the last couple of years yeah man, it's getting yeah it's getting so much worse that's the bit yeah. it's like yeah so i don't see how you get rid of a capitalist state without having a socialist state to um to fend off the reaction of the capitalist state Um, i think if you don't have a socialist state you leave a void even if you like destroy the the capitalist state that's there without a social state you leave a void for the capitalist state to reconstruct itself elsewhere you you i think that there's an obvious like debate about you have to get you have to have um the forces capable of repelling a counter-revolution and i think the the sort of i'm not like oh you must have a centralized armed force and like that uh, to be honest this is my area of expertise but i think like yeah you're gonna you're gonna need a comp you're probably gonna need a combination of the two like in terms of a centralized disciplined body but flexibility within that mm. just to defend a, a new system of production mm. right because the capitalists aren't going to want even though like i think a lot of i think a lot of capitalists will uh defect i do i honestly do because i think in a final breakdown a lot of them go bust and they basically don't have any other option um plus i i think like i i want as peaceful like i want as peaceful this is in all my work i say we want a peaceful as possible revolution Mm. we're just realistic about the fact that you're not going to be able to convince 100 percent of people off the bat that that's what we need Mm. and so it's a it's a process just of of like although i think if if you it's a it's a process of of um trying to convince people Mm. and like that starts off in a small group and disperses outwards but what happens in between that is obviously you know has its own way of working itself out um so yeah you have to you have to build forces a bigger force than the old force basically but the other thing is like i said like if you're to get rid of scarce i don't think you can get rid of the state without abolishing scarcity first because when you get scarcity when you get this collapse in production power concentrates into fewer hands mm. so then after a revolution maybe that concentration of power starts to spread out quite quickly but you not to the point where you can go oh, we can get rid of the state now firstly you have to you have to yeah, defeat but, yeah. the counter-revolutionary forces but then you convert private production into into state or social production and and prices then because what's going to happen in a final breakdown with this inflation right 
the inflation's going to keep rising mm. and it's going to get harder for people to buy stuff. And the, the, the point I was trying to make earlier is that the prices of production have fallen so low mm. that they're having to cut production to get the prices back up to make any profit, right? So if this contradiction keeps intensifying, like I anticipate, the inflation's going to keep getting worse. Oh, that was one thing I forgot to say about um, why I think it might we might be heading towards a final breakdown compared to the 70s. Yeah. Interest rates were higher then, and it usually takes a 6% cut in the... Um, in the baseline interest rate set by the central bank yeah. to get over a recession because that cheapens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the big one I was trying to remember. I can't believe I was. And you, the reason you're laughing is because we've been at zero. Yeah, we've had like half a percent for like yeah. a decade. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So how? That's amazing. Yeah. So how deep? And that's the average. I mean, sometimes mm. it's higher, sometimes it's lower. But you'd yeah. imagine that it might take more. Yeah, because the crisis to, is getting worse. They got nowhere work. to go with it. Yeah, because yeah. they 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 cut it. I remember when they were started cutting it after the. I remember not understanding what it meant at the time, <laughs> but I remember after the two thousand eight crash, like like all the talk about cutting interest rates to like half a percent or something. I don't know really what this means, but like it's it, it's that's insane. Six percent fall on average. Because what they what what they do to cut the interest rate. And that's like the baseline rate is a target that they set yeah. for the whole economy. Yeah. Um, it cheapens uh, capital, so it enables more borrowing and lending yeah. to get things going again, get, yeah, yeah. keep cash flow going, etc. Yeah, but they've printed billions. Like, yeah. They've printed like... A, a, yeah, that, like yeah, it's gone. It was at this point. The amount, like... So with the money... With, I'll do it this way because it made more sense. To do that. <laughs> with the money printing, if you look at the the amount of money that's been printed over time by the federal reserve yeah so it goes like this for a long time mm. then after 2008 it starts doing that and then 2020 it starts doing that <laughs> so i'm gonna get this up here yeah so you can so what they're doing is they're trying to lower the interest rate to cheapen capital so what they're doing is printing the money digitally and then they use that to buy debt essentially uh whether that's from the government or from corporate uh, corporations who sell their own debt um, because they want their debt off their balance sheets um, to 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 a, make investment in their companies more attractive. Um, and yeah, you're just at this stage in the system now where there's so much debt, like the the um, the debt, like the debt expresses the overaccumulation of capital, like the surplus capital. To, to some extent and yeah. the, the the debt to gdp in the us is at an all-time high at the moment or it was in it was an all-time high even higher than world war Two. yeah yeah whoa so at the end of world war Two, debt to gdp in the us is 121 percent yeah um what the fuck is it now it was 136 percent at the start of the pandemic what yeah at the start of the pandemic yeah, yeah. before they printed all the money uh, well Around when, that time when, when they, they started when they, when, it, yeah. when they put the was the big like yeah. four trillion yeah. dollar package, right? Wait, so when they did that, it wrote so it, it shot up from like 119 to 131 or something, or 136. <sighs> so yeah, so when you think about all the debt as a result of a, even what, worse than us, like we're at like yeah. 110 or something. Yeah, I mean yeah. the US is the biggest 
and most developed capitalist economy. So you could argue it's the most decayed, like that's a word mm. Marxists use a lot yeah. in terms of the aging yeah. of a capitalist economy, like it's the most decayed. Um, and you can see that in, in, in the US, like a lot of like um, sociologists have started to say that it's sinking to third world levels of in terms yeah, of, quite a lot of social places. inequality and social deprivation flint michigan um, man yeah and they're yeah. not they're not it's not isolated situation either with people's water just being like undrinkable and yeah. poisoning them like there's like parts of oklahoma where you set the water on fire like it's it's insane like i mean britain also has kind of got that i mean they have the britain has like one of the richest or sorry two of the richest and seven or eight out of ten of the poorest parts of northern europe that's just that's just northern Europe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're yeah we have like yeah the, the the richest of the most affluent parts of northern Europe. Like yeah, it's like northern westernish Europe. Like the 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 more like developed sort of like yeah France Germany. I don't know where the cutoff is, but yeah. But it's a, it's a stunning stat because you think about it. It's like yeah, all we have the places with all the money and the places with none of the money. It's like wow, like you couldn't just like balance that out just a little bit, guys, just a little bit, just a little bit, yeah. and then you know there wouldn't be. I mean, they're, they're to I totally agree that capitalists and especially the leading capitalists in, in the country are greedy and greed is part of their motivation. But there is a systemic exacerbation uh, or even even before you, you can talk about it being exacerbated, yeah. a systemic, structural, inherent um problem in capitalism that causes that concentration of capital because mm. it tends to break down into a contract into production contracting we yeah. get recession and to offset that you as i say you redistribute the value yeah. from below upwards because that sustains their capital their companies and their own personal wealth do you think there's a good example of that like working because like one that because i agree that 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 would be like the the redistribution of the wealth is like wonderful in that, in my mind, at least, you want to create a system where I don't think inequality is is I don't think inequality can ever be destroyed without without like yeah armed conflict. Like I don't think I don't think you can make everything totally equal without some people getting murdered and put in in camps. Right? I just don't think it mm. works. Like because it's just impossible. <laughs> like you can't you can't equal out everything perfectly. Right? No. That said. Like state state sponsored like welfare systems and like ways to redistribute wealth for me are just like why would you not do that? Um, it's like why I why I like Jeremy Corbyn, why I'm in favor of like not not even like it pisses me off when people talk about like raising tax rates on the wealthy because it's like get them to pay any tax. Like yeah. like get, just just stop them offshoring the fucking money, and then maybe we wouldn't even need to think about raising the tax rate. Maybe we'd have enough to redistribute the money anyway. But <laughs> like, it's, they it's, they could do it right. They could re redistribute some of the money. Or but yeah, or, do you, do you do have a good example of this? Because I haven't seen I haven't because like the the point I was trying to make was just like that this like accumulation of money and wealth or power or whatever is not just like something that seems to happen in, in capitalism. I think we talked about this the last time as well was the, the Pareto distribution where like the, the you, it's like a, a law of nature that like almost 
that things tend to accumulate like that. Like you get, yeah, like it's like 10% of the people have like 70% of the wealth. But then of those like 10%, like the top 10% of them have like 90% of that wealth. Mm. And it like goes like all the way up to yeah. the extremes. But it happens in like, like almost every expression of like humanity in that like, so like 1% of the artists on Spotify get 90% of the plays. Like, um hopefully your book sells well but like one percent of the authors sell like 95 percent of the books it's like th th that tends to happen and i've n i've never seen aside from like a really strongly regulated capitalist like market like like sweden or like some of the scandinavian countries where they have like a lot of like free like economic freedom for people but then there's also like relatively high tax rates and a lot of like distributive policies and like yeah free healthcare, education, etc. Mm. Like, is that where you would like envision the way this going? Or do you see it as more like a, cause I always imagined like a much better way of if we ever got to like a, a more idealistic future would be like a more, a more federalized thing whereby like the, the power wouldn't be concentrated in at Westminster or in um, Paris or Berlin or Washington. Like it would be, local communities like governing themselves like and yeah it wouldn't be a huge overarching structure like mm. is that is that kind of where you're suggesting we kind of meander towards yeah so once i'm saying yes once you get state socialism you can start to reverse that breakdown in production and go beyond what production we had before that breakdown under capitalism and so um consumption would start to rise um, in a diffused way, because that's the way things work, you're never going to get like some sudden e equality of, of consumption. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the early stages of capitalism, the most productive workers will still be the, the ones with the highest income, but prices will also be falling for everyone, mm -hmm. right? So everyone's consumption will benefit. And that it won't just be personal consumption, it will be regions getting richer, uh, localities getting richer and so wealth itself will tend to diffuse and disperse outwards and therefore the centrality of the state basically becomes irrelevant it just kind of that's the that's the thinking it, it withers away um, I don't know if we've done a good job in the past of explaining that but it's it's definitely based on production like the theory always has to be based on production with the the way people would in terms like i didn't really ex explain it before in terms of income mm. we like money is becoming more and more devalued right yeah. so this is again for me a sign of a kind of pre-socialist trend where money is basically becoming obsolete mm. as a result of the tendencies we've talked about with the price of production falling um etc so you're going to have to replace money so the the system that marx talks about is a voucher system, um, a non-transferable voucher. He calls them certificates, but we could call them vouchers. NFT. Or well, <laughs> again, it's to me like all of the all of, everything is in place. Like we talk about capitalism building socialism, mm. it's actually it's actually doing that. Capitalism is building socialism. Mm. As I say, planning within a capitalist enterprise is increasingly planned and now down to the finest detail because you've got all this data 
right? They, they you wouldn't believe how well planned it is now. Um, so what's the next evolutionary step? Well, planning the economy as a whole. Mm. That's the next econ- uh, and centrally, because yeah. obviously these these companies are centrally planned on a long term basis. Yeah. The problem is there's still that competition between each other, so yeah. that the so things don't go to plan. Yeah. Because you get the crisis and that intensifies competition, and things go out of whack and don't don't go to according to a plan. So the next evolutionary step, because the thing about a revolution, and again this is another reason I think you have to keep a state for a while. Is a is a is a revolution is is also like the last evolutionary step after a whole series of evolutionary steps. Mm. So you can't jump ahead too far of evolution, mm. essentially. So I don't. I think if you try and abolish the state outright, you're going to bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> effectively, yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like the the people who are the abolish the police people, because mm. it's like man. What? <laughs> like, you think that's going to solve the crime? Like, <laughs> well, I think I think there's a good chance that abolish the police actually means privatize the police. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's, and it's not even. It doesn't even mean privatize the police. It means can you afford your own private security? Then you'll be fine. Yes. Like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's. Um, <laughs> but but it has benefits for the accumulation of capital because. Uh, the taxes, I mean, they don't have any taxes to, to be able to afford a, a police force, for one thing. But the taxes that would usually go to towards the police, which is is hot, at least. I mean, Marxists talk about the police being um, a body of defenders of private property, right? Mm. But it, obviously it has some public functions as well. Yeah. And that costs... Ta- that's, why that's why all societies have had yeah, some sort of, exactly. like, you know... Watchers of the law, yeah. or like... so if they can abolish the police and they don't have to pay for the public side of of what the police do anymore, mm. that's going to save money uh, that would have been going to effectively would have been going to the public. That could be redirected to private investment, um, things things like that. Um, so yeah, like like I say, like I see the state as. You can't get rid of it because you can't run ahead of evolution. So if you want to be a, a an anarchist, like a, you want socialism, but you want your, the anarchist version of it, you, I just think you're going to bite off more than you can chew. Mm. Um, and it's like, the inertia as well, you know. How do you mean? Like as in, like getting people to jump to something that that different, yeah. from the current situation, yeah, is just like bonkers yeah i like, mean i think won't do it. yeah you know, people people hate change like as yeah, much as that... everyone everyone wants the revolution until you know it happens yeah of course like... <laughs> i mean you can see people getting more conservative mm. that's what happens um you know when there's le- when there's less when there's less consumption per capita there's more conservatism mm. because your capacity dwindles like so this is i mean a lot of the culture war stuff that gets talked about doesn't really think about that it just thinks about this is what's getting taught by academics and yeah and stuff like that um so that that's one side of it and the sort of the opposite of i mean marxism is a as a wants to replace like liberalism as as usurp tended to usurp conservatism Mm. but that's because of the way production has developed it's not because it got taught more in universities or, you know, cause, the, or, or it's in the, 
the li- you know the liberal uh, press like brainwashing the masses. It's no, because I mean, it worked because like it's because it, our was, pro- it was the most sensible and like well, open-minded yeah. way of approaching ideas. Yeah, but but earlier capitalism was more dominated by social conservatism and mm. arguably even within the working class. Yeah, because you had that scarcity of consumption. Mm. As time has gone on and our productive capacity has risen, um, people have. You know, even even quite poor people to some extent have been able to buy a broader range of of things. Like because the capitalist has, to, like every time there's a crisis, the capitalist has to d- diversify his or hers um, investments. Mm. So you start investing in different um, um, industries. You start inventing things that didn't exist before, um, and that gives rise to a new ideology or a new sort of liberalism the other thing is the work you need to import cheaper labor Mm. so the working class starts to sort of um experience other cultures that they hadn't before working alongside different people from different backgrounds so social social liberalism Mm. has overtaken social conservatism because of these developments in in industry which has become more integrated globally as well yeah um so but but then when you get the crisis and you get the production sort of falling and and people are their consumption is falling relative to the their income then this sort of social conservatism and unfortunately that last stage of evolution that i was talking about tends to go through like it tends to pass through the eye of a needle sort of thing it's almost like this twisted inverted historical process that you just it's just almost like kind of inevitable but that's yeah that's the gist of my argument and why i'm i I think a state socialist um lower communism uh has to be taken up in the early phases but but with the technology we have now um and especially with some of the technological um developments um and leaps that we're actually making now i think the state could wither away fairly quickly yeah i mean people are people are people are both like way more willing to be independent and totally incapable of it at the same time mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a it's a weird paradox that we're in but like so then to to, to kind of yeah to wrap up here i got like one more one more thing i wanted to ask you about um and we kind of touched on it a bit here, and it's a bit more philosophical rather than an economic question. But like, so the the idea is always that in the this no, I'll not call it a utopia, but in this like evolution, once we, once we've reached theoretically this stage where we have like either less of or no state at all, or if it's like just like little local councils or you know whatever form this eventually takes one of the arguments that people quite often make would be that the inequality that comes along with capitalism and the the scarcity sometimes and the and the and almost the like the 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 risk of poverty mm. like drives people to do things like the the if everything was provided for people theoretically that that we would just sit around and not do anything like and and i don't know to what extent i buy this argument because i've seen it where I, I i there are certain types of people who that is true for 
and there are certain types of people it's not. What I don't know is like what, which one is like the majority of the population. But like, what's your sense on on this? Because I'm sure you've heard this argument. Before. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, people tend to say it to justify slashing welfare. Well, because, yeah, <laughs> because yeah, I mean, I like I don't buy that. Those arguments yeah. are stupid, right? Yeah. But I like on a general if, point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I am not a prophet. I can't look into a crystal ball, but <laughs> I, from reading history as well as um theory and studying the development of capitalism i think humans are inherently innovative creatures um i think we will always strive to uh innovate bit by bit um because it happened before capitalism and it happened before private property it was in fact it was like um it was really the the um, Neolithic agricultural revolution about 13,000 years ago that brought about private property. Before that, um, we kind of had a, like a primitive communism. Um, and I mean, there was actually, there were actually arguments that there was no war before private property existed. I don't know if that's true, but there were some, some emerging theories yeah. about yeah. that. And one of the theories is that there wouldn't be uh war in um a world socialist system because you'd have abundance for all and everyone there's there there's less competition um between people over profit and over resources but i think there would still be social competition um i i you know i think like i said it's not a utopia I think there's as long as there's generations of people, there's always going to be generational yeah. tensions. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of generational tensions are technological tensions. Um, you know, a um, and a new generation inherits a level of a certain level of technological capacity, which gives rise to a certain value system, value ethical system. Mm. Um, which then gets challenged by the next generation, which inherits a, a, a new level of technological capacity, which gives rise to a higher ethical value system or a more ambitious one. And that is, a, that is something that goes on through history and, unless we abolish the ageing process, uh, which some people claim could happen. <laughs> Again, that's just too fanciful to talk about at the moment. But, but you, would, you would certainly expect... The aging process to slow down like in the same way it has done to some extent yeah. over the last century yeah like we live longer we live 40 years longer now than we did 100 years ago 40 years yeah on average mm. yeah in, that, over that, the world over the that, world because that because child like is those those statistics are kind of skewed by childhood mortality though right probably yeah because like because that's always like because people are always like when oh, you know in the 1700s the the average age was like mm. 30 something and you're like you're thinking shit like like half like loads of the people they all died at 30 is like nah mm. they, they were all dying before the age of three yeah yeah and or they would make it to like a relatively yeah. old age but no you're definitely right it is increasing although i always think that like i used to want to live forever <laughs> I, I used to um but then i i got i i really thought a lot about like 
you know, I've talked about this before on the show. I can't remember who with, but Tolkien um, wrote about uh, the dwarves and the men and the elves in the Lord of the Rings. Or he said that uh, the dwarves were given like a certain, like a quite a long life, and they just used it to like accumulate gold and dig in, you know, under the under the ground and you know hoard. And the elves had so much time, they had infinite time, that they they never did anything because mm. they had forever in which to do it. Yeah. And but that men were gifted the curse of mortality to make us do things. Like, <laughs> to, it's, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting theory. I mean. There's there's the theory that you'd eventually just get bored and you'd run out of things to do. Like once you've done everything, you yeah. you couldn't do it do any more. Drag that thing. Right um, sorry, yeah. That's right. But um, yeah. In answer to you, in as the proper answer to your question, I think there's always going to be social competition. You know, scientists aren't going to go away. We're still going to be doing science, and there's always going to be a scientist that does something first like and they're going to be motivated to do it first because they want to be the first one to do it mm. there's always going to be and in fact i think social competition will probably intensify in that way because there are going to be more scientists per capita i mean there already is like science is the helmsman of production now mm. like that's that's something that goes alongside the automation revolution mm. um and that's a trend that's just going to intensify under socialism again partly because people are going to have more free time as as the system uh, progresses to do their own experimentation you know uh, independent uh, craftsmanship will make make a big comeback because of people having more free time um i don't think people are just going to lie around doing nothing i think they're going to do more i think we're going to, we're going to do a lot more than we do now I really do. I, I just think we're going to have a lot more opportunity. You know, people, to me, anyway, I think people are more athletic these days. And I think that's partly because, again, partly because there's been investment in the professionalization of sport mm. and other people have like been inspired to follow, to you know, to copy what they see on telly or, you know, whatever you, however you want to put it. But also, we do have more free time in some ways, like... Or, or certain sections of the population do, mm. and more people go to the gym. Yeah. Like the price of going to the gym fell quite significantly really? in the last. Yeah, you got you got, a, you you got a, to the gym's trendy now. Yeah, it, it's trendy, but mm. it's trendy because the prices fell. Yeah, like it's it's more it it got more access, accessible. It's so, also it's probably because also because like that's like a that's a thing about affluence. Because like before, I think it is a bit, being a bit, you know, having a bit, a bit being a bit chubby or whatever <laughs> was like a thing where people would, it would be seen as like a thing where, oh, you know, he's got the money to mm. eat loads. Whereas now it's, it's about like, now you've got most, most like um, obesity and health problems come in people who are poverty stricken and eating mm. like, yeah, like the the worst kind of food because yeah. it's, that's all they can afford. It's a complicated... Yeah, um, and, and what happens is then, like, the going to the gym is now signaling that you're affluent because you can you can afford to eat well and live healthily. You know, you're not you're mm. not doomed to eat the cheapest stuff that you can find because yeah. that's all you got. And, like, I think that's what's, what's happening with that. I think, I think that's partly true, but I think there are, like... I think it go. It depends on your circumstances. Like, how many children have you got? How much spare time have you got? Mm. Um, if you're a working class person with quite a lot of spare time because you don't have dependents, 
you can go afford to go you probably can afford to go to the gym mm. if you've got a okay wage um so it's complicated it's not like a it's not like a definite trend but i think like more free time means people being able to look after their health better yeah. so you get more you get um a higher level of athleticism mm. and so just sort of trying to extrapolate that trend in a social system you might get a far more competitive sporting um uh events for example mm. like a lot like like you were saying about the monopolization of everything you mm. see it in football as well yeah or or other sports where like a handful of clubs dominate you know the whole time yeah uh because they're effectively hoarding the best players but in a socialist system that might start to spread out because one of the reasons football has advanced like despite that concentration of power is because the professionalization of the sport has given the players more time to dedicate to getting better yeah and so the high the highest end of the sport has improved mm. uh, considerably but in a system where a lot of more people have a lot more free time that competition i think would increase again um more clubs would reach that that level sort of thing so yeah i, I don't think uh, these those are just a couple of examples i can think oh, that's of interesting. But... you hear that folks if you want if you want a more competitive premier league <laughs> we need socialism now <laughs> but yeah man um i think that's a good place to leave it on we've done an hour and a half so okay cool thanks very much for having me on again no problem man yeah show them the book one more time yep uh <laughs> The End of Capitalism, The Thought of Hamid Grossman. It's just an introduction. It's not a substantial defence because that's something I want to work on next. But um, I think an introduction was needed because he's not well known. Yeah. Um, but he's he's very important. So if, you can, if it can get people uh, sort of thinking about him and looking into him, I think that's a good start. And then hopefully I can do something more substantial um, because he obviously still has his critics. And yeah. um, they, I need to um take on the challenge which is always welcome yeah brilliant so yeah thanks very much thank you thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast if you want to leave us a comment that would be awesome please like share subscribe and if you're listening on apple please leave us a review until next time thanks for listening